I'm Brad Gordon, and I'm an art teacher at Fusion Academy. And I work with a group of fantastic teachers. This summer, I'm catching up with them on their ideas on education. This is Summer League. My guest today is Chris Wallach. He's an English and history teacher here at Fusion Academy. We'll talk education in part one. And in part two, he's going to come back and talk to us about Dark Souls and how video games relate to teaching. So I'm here with Chris Wallach today. Uh, Thanks for joining me, Chris. Thanks for having me here, bro. (laughs) Uh, Chris, you've been here quite a while, almost two years, something like that? Yeah, it'll be two years in about a week's time. How, and what do you teach here? Uh, I teach mostly the histories, uh, anything from U.S. history, Texas history, uh, world history, government, economics. But I also teach the Englishes on all levels and uh, most of the electives. And now uh, I also teach algebra and pre-algebra. So this is your first official teaching job. Right? Yes. Yes. Tell us a little bit about where you come from. Uh, so I'm in, originally from Scranton, Pennsylvania. Um, actually, Taylor, Pennsylvania, which is right next door, but just like people who live in the surrounding area of Houston, if you're not from Houston, uh, and you ask, you know, where are you from, you say Houston gotcha. uh, to other people around the world. So I tell people I'm from Scranton, uh, but right next door in Taylor, Pennsylvania. Uh, So born and raised there, I went to college at Penn State, where um, after multiple failed attempts at trying to find a major that I liked, I finally decided on American Studies, which was kind of a mashup of uh, English and U.S. history and literature. And I ended up going to law school at Ohio Northern in Ada, Ohio. And after I graduated, I was really, really sick of the weather. Uh, very cold, very dry, very gray. So I kind of hopped in my car with uh, a bag full of clothes and my dog and wound up in Houston, Texas of all places. And I absolutely love it here. And uh, in a transitional period, uh, looking for work and trying to figure out what I wanted to do with the rest of my life, I was kind of disillusioned by the criminal realm uh, in law. Uh, I just by accident kind of wound up finding this job with Fusion since it matched up exactly with my undergraduate degree and uh, found out that I absolutely love education, which is kind of coincidental and funny because half of my family are all teachers or professors. So I guess that kind of comes naturally to Wallach's, which is one of the few things that comes naturally to Wallach's. (laughs) Do you think that you would work in a traditional public school? Uh, Yeah, I really... um, never considered that sort of thing ever in my life and again I I wound up with this job by accident Um, but I think if I had the proper training for managing full classrooms um, I think I'd really enjoy that you know I think it comes as a double-edged sword because with every success you have you have one kid that you wish would do better and it's very hard Mm -hmm. to manage a large classroom and uh, I graduated in an entire class of maybe a hundred and some kids I think 107 not everybody graduated so my classrooms were maybe 20 kids 
uh, 30 at most. Yeah. Um, and then we come down to a place like here where everywhere, Woodland Spring, downtown, um, you know, classrooms are hundreds of kids large. So um, that'd be quite the undertaking, but I think uh, if I put my mind and energy and effort towards it, I think I would end up liking that job just as much as I like this one. I was didn't think about that. I have friends who, so for example, when you get your graduate degree in art, you become a TA and you have, you're like an instructor of record for classes, but there's very little instruction given to you as a teacher. Like none of your degree is in teaching, even though most of what the, most people as after they graduate with this degree are trying to get college teaching jobs. And then when you come here, I think the idea is that you figure it out. Like the, the people who are going to figure it out go out of their way to figure it out. Meanwhile, people who are actually certified in teaching and go through ad, uh, like education programs, like art education as opposed to art, have a ton of instruction on like, this is classroom management. This is I do, we do, you do. And there, I had no idea about any of this stuff until I came to Fusion. Yeah, same. And then I started, they were throwing out these terms and I was like, why have I not heard of this before? All of my Houston Community College classes that are 10 people or 30 people. Do you think the age range has an The age range is that? at, yeah. Because in K to 12, you're also dealing with teenagers and they're unpredictable and they're you know for sure it makes the job so much easier when you have students that want to learn and I think that if I were to teach um, in the public sector it would have to be high school and 11th and 12th grade kids because mm -hmm. at that point um, there's probably a better chance that they want to learn where as you work with younger kids and it's probably a crapshoot uh, and obviously college once you get to the higher level courses, those students obviously want to learn it because that's what they're majoring or minoring in. Yeah. Um, so I think we got really lucky here. Uh, I don't want to speak for everybody, but I can honestly say that I got very lucky with the majority of my students because they come in and they genuinely want to get something out of the class, which makes it extremely easy on my part. I really don't have to work that hard to get the information across because they're meeting me halfway. So. Yeah. That makes the job easy. So I, I do agree with you. I think on the public level with a classroom full of 100 kids, completely different style that you would have to adapt to. And um, you know, the biggest challenges would be those kids that really don't want to buy into what you're trying to teach them. Yeah. I think one thing I miss here and the only bad thing about the one-to-one -one is that you can't present an idea and then bounce ideas off of students. And let's say one student says, I think this about this work of art. And you can, in a classroom, you can say, this person believes, you know, sees this. What do you see over there? And as soon as you get multiple people, it raises everybody's level a lot easier than the one-to-one. -one. Sometimes it's a little hard to say like, what do you see in this? Somebody else, you know, I will point out this, but they're like, my opinion doesn't matter because I'm the teacher. Right. Like, I'm coming from, they're like, well, yeah. of course you. It's tough yeah. to get uh, a wider worldview or perspective or healthy competition 
in a one-to-one. Yeah. Um, and this job in particular has certainly made me be more of a devil's advocate in every single lesson that I teach to try to get that across. And it's really tough. Um, at the end of the day, you know, you only have so much time with each student and, um, you know, rather than having that kind of collaboration or competitiveness between students or even just sharing ideas, uh, you have to come up with that on your own, which has been a really great learning tool for myself because my first month here, I had no idea what I was doing. Yeah. So, you know, you have to catch on to that stuff quick to, you know, the, for the student to actually benefit from your class because, um, obviously as teachers, we want our students to trust us, but at the same time too, um, only being able to share one side of the story or one perspective isn't the best way of teaching when, especially in something like history, you don't have just one right answer a lot of the time. There's a lot of what ifs and a lot of different answers that could be right. So uh, putting in the time to play devil's advocate and showing different uh, perspectives, whether it was from people of that time or current day politics or anything like that, um, is really important and is tough to do as one human being for every single hour in the day. So it's hard to be present and on it enough to do what you're saying, to be devil's advocate and be the other student that they need or the, uh, not another student, but another voice. Yeah. A counter argument, but that's all you have to do. Yeah. What kind of experiences led to you becoming a teacher? And did you ever think that you would become one? Yeah. Um, like I thought before, I really never considered teaching, um, never had anything against teaching. You know, uh, one of my best friends always had wanted to be a teacher and is now a teacher. And, uh, you know, he gets out of bed every single morning and he goes to a job that he absolutely loves. And it's just great to see. And it's funny looking back how I never even considered it. Um, I think too, where, um, also strange that uh, you know me and everybody else knows me. Um, I don't have a one-track mind with a lot of things. I kind of will, you know, dabble with a bunch of things. And I actually had a one-track mind with a legal profession for the longest time. I went into college wanting to be a lawyer. And, um, you know, by the time I was out, I just really didn't see myself being a prosecutor or, you know, looking to be a DA for the rest of my life. So, um, you know, I had this one idea in my head for years and years and years, and all of a sudden, um, no longer that was the case. And I considered stuff like, okay, well, maybe if I could find a place where I want to live for a while, I could start up a solo practice and do just, uh, you know, general practice, just civil law, avoid criminal and avoid the messy stuff that I don't personally like, like family law or tort. Um, but I was considering everything from trying to get into different types of businesses like HR, um, stuff like that, or start up my own business. Um, so, uh, the fact that I had never considered teaching is kind of mind boggling, but at the same time too, you look back and you say, well, I was really stupid back then. So I can say that about me pretty much every morning I wake up, I could say about myself the day prior, um, but yeah, I think if somebody planted that seed in my head and mm -hmm. said, hey, did you ever consider teaching? Um, you know, I probably would have. I don't know why it was not on my radar, but I can tell you right now I'm in love with it. Teaching is not something that is a, is a shoot for the moon type of profession in 
our society. Um, so when people are like, what do you want to be and dream, you know, doctor, lawyer, teaching is not in that realm. I, I think the thinking is that people just like fall into it. Yeah, and if you don't mind me interjecting, uh, I did a symposium uh, for Texas education a few months back. I uh, spoke for a whole day. Um, I forget the name of it, but it was uh, downtown for about, it was like a seven or eight hour day. And, uh, you know, too many of the teachers that I spoke in front of were there to figure out a way to make the job easier so, you know, they could just deal with their shit get their day over with and then get on to what they actually wanted to do. A lot of them were teachers just so they can coach high school football or basketball or baseball. Interesting. And, um, you know, uh, really, really makes you disillusioned by the whole education sector when you see that, you know, the future of the next generation's intelligence and education and wisdom come from people who really don't care all that much. Um, which again, just like, you know, there's scummy lawyers and there's really incompetent doctors out there. And it takes just one bad person in that career to make a bad name for everybody else. And a lot of people see that in the teaching sector. They see just lazy teachers who do what they need to do. And especially in Texas, you teach to the star test and you really don't go out of your way to have kids actually learn how to think for themselves. You just have them memorize stuff for an exam and yeah. they could purge it afterwards and um you know it, it sucks to see that but it's a reality and that's why uh you know i love this job here as much as i do because we throw that out the window i don't give two craps about the star exam here i get to teach kids how to think better mm -hmm. how to you know uh, think a few steps ahead uh play the proverbial 4d chess you know mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. um why I think a lot of teachers think why would I put my neck on the line to go out of my way to and they physically just don't have the time and energy to individually deal with students oh god yeah especially with the size of classrooms you know in our area too um you know I go home tired but it's a good tired it's like a workout mm -hmm. tired your, mm -hmm. your muscles are sore but you don't hate yourself you yeah. know you, you know you're doing a good job I go home exhausted some days you know and I lose my voice which my fiance loves mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, but yeah I go home exhausted a lot but I love it and but that's just with one kid in a classroom yeah. you know uh, so maybe I'll rephrase my statement from prior um, maybe I can't handle the yeah. entire classroom but it would be fun to at least try see I I always I will go and teach at uh, the community college on Mondays and Wednesday nights and often it's kind of the reverse where I'm here all day teaching one-to-one -one, and I actually spend more energy here trying to get them going than when you go into a classroom with kids or kids students oh, they're kids uh, to us now yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, but then actually yeah they're all ages and you go in I feel like I have to work half as hard and it's more energizing to work in that big classroom now if you had to do that all day that's a different story but i do feel it's almost like swinging with the weights on the bat yeah and then taking the weights off and you see people take off on their own and you're like man so uh, it would be great i love the one-to-one -one, but it would be great to have our 
students interact more. Yeah, no, I absolutely agree with that. Do you have anybody you model your teaching or coaching style on? Uh, yeah, for sure. Um, honestly, I don't know if he's going to listen to this podcast, but uh, I mentioned my buddy Joe before. Um, he just, the energy and enthusiasm he puts forward in his job and, you know, the stories that he teaches. And even with bad teaching jobs that he's had in the past, you know, he put 110% into that, even though his kids were really crappy to him and, um, you know, just uh, bad manners or just no um, work ethic in the classroom, he still busted his ass to do a good job for them. So, um, you know, I don't tell him nearly enough. So if you are listening, Joe, thanks for that, because you give me the energy to get out of bed and do this job every day as well. Um, and then as far as mentoring goes, you know, um, my parents were really big in my life. They always, um, you know, made sure that they were doing the best for me that they could. And um, my vice principal at the time uh, was a huge mentor in my life as well. So I always name drop him, uh, Joe Mosiunis. Uh, he went out of his way to, uh, and he was a big football guy. You know, we actually had a pretty damn good football team in high school and uh, he went out of his way to you know go hang out with this nerdy fat golfer and just help him grow uh, personally and socially because I already had the education stuff down I was just really meek and shy and weak and introverted and he kind of flipped that around for me but in the right way it wasn't ever forced it was um, you know, an open conversation about, hey man, uh, do you want to improve? Because if you do, then I'll help you get there rather than saying, listen, this is what you're going to do. Um, so, you know, a combination of really, really good people and good influences in my life, I think have all uh, shaped the way that, you know, I interact with these kids as far as my mentoring and my teaching styles go. Um, you know, I, I never tell students what they need to do or can't do. Uh, I always open up the door for that kind of conversation and say like, hey, you know, this is where I see you at. You know, are you looking to change that or improve that at all? And can I help you if you do want to do that? So um, they definitely made me a much more um, honest person with myself, more reflective, um, a much better communicator with other people. Uh, I was definitely kind of mouth moves faster than brain kid. So what do you mean by that? Oh, I would just blurt out anything. And then I would have to like take 10 seconds and realize what I said. I got in trouble a lot for that. So, um, but yeah, just, you know, trying to process, um, you know, other people's feelings or their state of mind or what they're going through rather than just assume that I know what the problem is and throw a solution at them as to how it should go. Um, you know, I definitely became a more patient and, um, a more thinking person, I guess, if you want to call it that, because of um, everybody's influence on me to uh, be a better problem solver and be a better communicator with other people. I like what you're saying about your vice principal um, who kind of came to you and said, do you want to get better? And that's the whole idea behind that is something that I think we kind of push here is just taking responsibility for what you want. And if you don't want to get better, you're not going to get better. Like just having an adult coming to you and saying, you need to do this. is not an effective tactic. For oh, teenagers. God, no. It's just immediate pushback. They'll yeah. do the opposite regardless of if, if it's good for them or not. 
Yeah. Which I is, mean, still there are problems with, like, not every teenager is going to respond well to, do you want to change? No. Okay, well, moving on. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but that's something that we do here. Yeah, an old quote um, from, of all people, Marilyn Manson after the Columbine shooting. Um, you know, because uh, I think at that point his music in uh, Doom on PC, mm-hmm. uh, a lot of news stations were reporting, like, this is the reason why kids are so violent and troubled and uh, yada, yada, yada. And they interviewed Marilyn Manson and they said, well, what would you have told the kids? That went on the shooting spree and he said, I wouldn't have told him anything. I would have listened. And I know that's silly uh, example, but that has always stuck in my mind. And it's the first thing that um, usually pops into my mind when I think I know what's right for a kid. And, you know, I always make sure that I take just the extra 10 seconds to say like, hey, what's going on? You know, uh, what's troubling you? And make sure that I know for sure rather than just assume I know what they're going through. Yeah. I often think of dealing with teenagers almost as somebody who speaks a totally different language, but they know some English, and you're kind of talking to them, and you assume that, like, this kid doesn't know what they're talking about. But really, they're just, they don't understand the language. Like, they're, yeah, there's some communication differences. Do you have any favorite assignments or projects that you have given students recently where you've seen them just really take off? Yeah. Um, so again, because I can't sit still, uh, I always come up with new stuff, even if I like old projects. Um, so more recently, um, you know, some of my students, uh, one student in U.S. history, she's working on the big book of American imperialism. So we're making this a year-long or two-semester-long project where we take a look at things like the Panama Canal or the U.S.'s involvement in World War One or World War Two, and we're going to have a field day once we get to Cold War. But essentially, it's uh, analyzing America's decisions with anything as far as foreign policy or uh, foreign involvement, wars, uh, any sorts of imperialistic tendencies that we've had over the last century. And she just takes a look at it from an objective point of view and say, all right, so this is why we got involved. And this was the objective net gain or net loss. Like we got this territory, we got these trade deals, we got this money, we lost these troops, etc." And then uh, in her opinion, she writes her subjective uh, analysis of like, hey, I think this was a good deal or not so much of a good deal. And our baseline for that is, does this follow American ideals? Uh, especially in such a turbulent political time, too. Uh, I really want these students to be able to think for themselves, take a look at what's going on in the news, and make decisions for themselves. Because um, if, I mean, economists will tell you, yeah, your vote doesn't matter. And I completely understand that from a math Mm -hmm. point of view. But Mm -hmm. uh, being able to flex that privilege and go out and vote really does mean something in this country when a lot of other countries don't offer that sort of thing. So... um, yeah, more recently, especially with the higher level students, I've been pushing them to um, think a few steps ahead and try to project or uh, guess as to what uh, causes will produce what effects, especially in history classes, government classes, economics classes. Um, so, yeah, I, we're really digging the big book of American imperialism right now. Another student in my economics class is working on a golden means project that just kind of popped into my head. I was teaching about ancient uh, Greece in world history 
and came across Aristotle's golden mean. Essentially, um, what that is, is never go too far in either extreme with whatever you're talking about. This in particular dealt with philosophy and government. Um, so he's just taking a look at federal intervention in the uh, market and saying, okay, so here's the two extremes. So for instance, uh, labor, right? Uh, one extreme would be zero federal intervention, um, free for all, uh, any labor laws or whatever, those don't exist. And then in the other direction, the government would have 100% control over any and all labor laws or uh, workplace standards, right? And then he comes up with his two thresholds, which how far is he willing to go in either direction uh, until there's that point where he butts up against like, nope, I refuse to go to this point to this extreme. And then the end goal is for him to come up with his golden mean and reasoning behind it uh, as to what he thinks is the most uh, economically fair or balanced or um, again, it's subjective, so it might deal with his own personal beliefs, whether that be moral, ethics, religious, whatever. And that's to help him build a more robust understanding of all the laws and policies that uh, states and the federal government put, puts into place to you know, help him understand, one, the economy better, uh, two, try to be a better critical thinker to understand actual correlation between uh, events and be able to pick that out and then go on and be able to vote on whatever he believes in. So I've really liked those two projects of late. And um, as far as like my go-to project to just get creative juices flowing in English classes or wherever, I love six word stories. Uh, I'm one of those guys that can go on to Minecraft and revel in a limited amount of resources and build really cool stuff. Mm -hmm. But if you give me the creative server with everything at my fingertips, I'll walk away. It's just too much for me and I could have every single resource ready to go and not make a thing. So uh, I really like working with that limited resource kind of, mm -hmm. uh, you know, uh, playground. Yeah. So having students write six word stories and have them be really good and have them convey the right uh, subtext or context out of just six words is a lot of fun. So. Uh, going through the process with students with that is probably my favorite single class assignment. I, I like the boundaries of something like that, or like the sandbox. And the idea of the sandbox is like, you can do anything you want to, but it's within this These confines. three foot square. It's like, in art, it's that, you run into that. That's the whole semester of art is like, we're going to select a one medium here and just play around with that medium or one you know element of art like shape we're just dealing with shape today because once you put all those things together it's entirely overwhelming um and even professional artists get into this thing where you like lose focus of what you're doing because there's the whole realm of possibility like your job as an artist is to make comments on society and like you sometimes get too wrapped up into like what should I be doing instead of what you actually believe in um so you have to like take a step back and be like you know what I'm just gonna make something with watercolors today <laughs> like yeah. totally narrow the focus and then you know grow from that the other thing I was gonna mention teaching kids to 
think for themselves and that's one of your big goals is to like come up with um to just be your own best thinker um and be your own dictator and i i think that it kind of equates to when you're that age it's similar kind of thing to going to another country once you like as you grow up you just take everything for what it is and you're like this is the world and then as soon as you leave the united states and go to another country you're like oh i've been growing up in the united states yeah that's a place and same thing with information once you like you get information when you're a kid this is like coming in from all angles and you're like this is you know this is the truth then once you step outside of that like you leave a place or you go to college or you go wherever you realize that like oh i've been listening to these types of people they all have they have an identity and they have a just like a news organization is like this is the guardian they're they have a certain viewpoint this is fox news this is npr they all have like specific opinions and they're shaped by the people who make it there is no voice of god like at least that comes out in a paper like that people right read. it's, it's, it's the reality like, of living in the cave yeah right and the shadows are the outside world to you yeah you know and then once you step out of that you know uh, proverbially and literally it's extremely daunting to have to take all of that in you know even with uh kids who have parents that really expose them to as much as they can you know, it's like their own little like post crusades moment where people realize, oh, there are other parts of the world. They have different types of foods and mm-hmm. spices and clothing that we don't have. And, uh, you know, it, even on little levels, right, whether it's your uh, religious outlook or political outlook or how you speak, you know, it's it's almost funny how. Uh, you know, growing up watching cartoons, there was that stereotypical southern cowboy accent. That's very real. There are plenty of people here in the For sure. good state of Texas that For talk sure. exactly like that, you know, and um, it's it's something to be taught or to hear of something, but to actually experience it firsthand is a completely different beast. And, um, you know, college is that for a lot of kids. A lot of them don't go to college in the same state. And, uh, you know, just trying to prep them the best that we can in these classes to get them to you know, think and, you know, it's, they're not getting thrown into the shark tank at that point there. At least they don't need the swimmies in the shark Mm -hmm. tank, you know? So I got one more question for you and then we'll take a break. Sure. Um, and that is how have you had to compromise as a teacher, be it in your personal life or in just in your work, um, to become a better teacher? I would absolutely say, to grow more patient was the biggest challenge for me. Uh, I'm, I'm not a very patient person to begin with. Everybody that knows me knows that. Uh, a very quick mover, thinker, speaker, and to have to kind of rewind and um, be patient with not just uh, you know my thoughts, but everything. And even my own way of teaching, um, sometimes it just doesn't work. And one of my best students now, uh, I have her for government and economics next semester. We've spent two years together already. It just blows my mind that I just realized that. Um, 
we started out together in world history and the way that I was teaching just did not work for her. Nothing stuck and um, nothing meant anything to her. And that was all on me. And uh, for me to have to deal with aggravation, not for my student, but for myself and my own ability to have to kind of go back and hit it from a different angle was um, probably one of the best learning tools that I've had here. Um, so I've definitely had to uh, kind of take the back seat to myself and realize like, okay, man, you're not doing this the best way that you can. You need to unlearn what you've been doing and try it from a different angle. And it was both a humbling and an extremely satisfying experience to be able to finally break through that wall. And ever since then, um, you know, we've had phenomenal classes and I've seen her grow both personally and um, academically and to see her uh, not just like mildly enjoy history, but to just be kicking ass and literally every single assignment that I throw at her is just, it's the best feel in the world coming from a, a point almost two years prior where I was not a good teacher for her. I might have been for other students, but I was just not doing the best that I could have been doing for her. I wasn't doing mediocre by any means and having to rewind and be patient with um, you know, both of us and especially myself and, uh, you know, realize what I was doing was, um, you know, not the right thing and have to work through that. Um, I've learned so much patience over the last two years and, um, man, yeah, I could definitely thank this job for that. So having to compromise my old attitude of like, nope, this is how we're going to do it. All right. Mm -hmm. Buck up, kiddo. Uh, you know, and to kind of throw that out the window was, uh, it definitely helped me out in more than just teaching. It helped me out in the rest of my life, I'm sure. Uh, we're going to take a break and we're going to come back in part two to talk about Dark Souls and video games in general. And Earthbound. And Earthbound. My favorite game of all time. theme or topic I guess I wanted to talk about regarding this was perspective and then under that uh, I guess other loose topics would be cooperation camaraderie um, and community but that was more of a very loose and sloppy facade to just talk about Dark Souls so okay um, yeah to me Dark Souls is a really really special game in general but for a very particular reason and the reason why I wanted to talk about this game uh, was because to me, it's something that I share with a lot of people for the same reason. But to a lot of other people, it's a completely different experience. So uh, for those of you unaware, Dark Souls um, is kind of like a low fantasy setting. You play, um, uh, quote, uh, chosen undead. And essentially, you're just locked in a cell to rot for the rest of your life. And you get uh, rescued by this knight who ends up dying shortly after. And he asks you to try to cure the undead curse. And outside of that, the plot is very light. 
essentially you just go, you ring two different bells, one that's way underground and one that's uh, higher up. And then um, by the end of the game, you end up uh, killing one of the last remaining gods and you choose to either uh, keep the eternal flame going or you let it die out. So overall, the plot is very, very light. Uh, but the world building and lore and everything behind the game is immensely um, complex and dense. Um, and uh, that is one of the many, many aspects of the Soul series, uh, specifically, though, Dark Souls 1, that uh, I love so much. And um, so the long story short, the point I'm trying to get across is... Um, it takes a lot of effort and teamwork among the community to not just understand the game, but understand its mechanics, beat the game. Um, sure, now most people that uh, are veterans of the series can beat the game, even if they're not speedrunning in a couple hours with no effort and probably no deaths. But my first time out, I think Dark Souls 1 was a 70-hour romp with an immense number of deaths and confusion and really not understanding much of the lore, much of the game mechanics, um, frankly much of anything. I kind of just scraped by and ended up beating it by luck um, and a lot of help from the community. So, um, so to me, Dark Souls was all about building community, getting to um, meet other people on uh, online forums and discussing uh, aspects of the game and have complete strangers uh, come into my world and help me and uh, over time it turned into me um, you know getting good and uh, learning the game itself and then helping other people by extension and uh, to me that's my favorite aspect of the game is the cooperation and helping others and sometimes a boss will be really difficult and I learn it and I will just camp it for days or weeks at a time and co-op with other people and help them get through it. Um, and to me, Dark Souls is all about camaraderie and teamwork and helping other people that you will probably never run into for the rest of your life. Do you think that Dark Souls would be as successful in a pre-internet era? So if you don't have wide access to community... You just have your cousin who who like has played the game coming over to your house on the weekend saying, here's how you do this. Uh, I definitely think it would have been successful, but in a completely different way. Demon Souls has more of that aspect. It's tough to say, though, in a pre-internet age because Demon Souls was also connected to the internet. But less people knew about it, less people talked about it. Um, but Miyazaki, the man who created the game and designed most of it and wrote most of it, uh, wanted it to be an experience where you really weren't supposed to beat it by yourself. You were supposed to seek out the help of others and learn from them. So even if we didn't have online connectivity where you could go in and cooperate with each other, I do think that there would have been a good chance it would have become a cult classic where it was kind of like the uh, old days of like, hey, I know how to catch Mew in Pokemon Blue, mm -hmm. right? Um, everybody knew about that and nobody had the internet back then when we were in, you know, fifth grade. <laughs> Would it have been as successful? Probably not. Nowhere near as successful as it is now, but, um, it definitely lends itself to that. And I think too, uh, real quick, Miyazaki got the idea for the whole cooperation aspect because, 
Um, he was driving on a mountain road in Japan in the middle of the winter and could not get up the slope due to the icy conditions. And uh, it took about a dozen strangers in their cars, never getting out of their cars, but using hand signals or light signals to kind of uh, bumper push each other up the hill. And that's how he got the idea, was just complete strangers who had no idea who the other person was helping each other for the benefit of everybody. And um, How many times did he die? <laughs> <laughs> that's interesting. Uh, I like that story. And Dark Souls, even if you're not familiar with video games, Dark Souls and the franchise um, have been, the name has been so thrown around to a million other games, it's like, the Dark Souls of... Fill in the blank. Yeah. That, to me, I, and I've not played Dark Souls. i played a little bit of 3, <clears throat> but I've, I haven't jumped in to the whole experience. But my experience so far with it was that you're expected to fail over and over. And you learn bits, these bits of information either like through your failure or... You get lucky or, you know, or like what you're saying, um, through the community of people kind of helping you through it. What, what are some things that you've learned from Dark Souls that you apply to your teaching or your, any other practice? Sure. Yeah. It's, it's all about observation. Um, even with the later games that got way faster in terms of gameplay, like Bloodborne and Sekiro and even Dark Souls 3. Um, you really need to, even if you're rushing through the game, you really need to take your time to understand what is going on around you. Um, though the game design itself, like the environmental design, is not always perfect, uh, they do put in a lot of effort to try to teach you through environmental storytelling, uh, as they call it, right? So um, if you see blood on the floor on an elevator, then maybe you should be more cautious around it, right? Um, or if you see scorch marks somewhere, maybe there's some sort of fire weapon or boss or enemy that can possibly injure you there. Um, so, I mean, I could go on with the examples, but uh, Dark Souls wants to teach you through its game mechanics, not through textualized tutorials, but mm -hmm. by the game itself and by the environment itself. So I try to carry that over into all of my classes where we're not just learning from one particular thing. I don't want my kids to learn only out of a history textbook. I think it's a great piece to a much larger puzzle. And uh, we have a class that we teach here called Big History Project, which mashes together uh, science and history. We start at the Big Bang and we go all the way to current events. We go through all the major thresholds of human civilization. What we take from there, no matter how big or small, there's puzzle pieces to better understand something, multiple points of view or perspectives that we need to actually have the most factually accurate representation of something that happened in history. So we take a look at um, physical geography, we take a look at um, you know military history, we take a look at religion and culture and food of the time. Um, you know if you're reading uh, let's say the crucible really helps to understand the Red Scare during the 50s in the United States to better understand that piece of literature. So even if um, you think like, oh, well, what does religion have to do with any of this? Or, you know, what does the culture at the time or whatever 
um, it really helps a lot of the time to take a look at every single little piece. Again, um, it, it's just environmental storytelling, but of the world itself. And just observe and take in and understand the cause and effect and correlation of all these different little things that played off of each other to that ended up culminating in this historical, you know, event. So um, you definitely cannot rush to conclusions. Just like in Dark Souls, if you run forward and assume that you'll live, you probably won't. And if you rush forward in your work in history class and you just assume that you know something as fact, you're probably going to be off base in at least one regard, if not many. I think back to games like uh, Half-Life 1, where before that they would have a lot of cutscenes that would happen that would kind of like fill you in. They would tell a story through this uh, highly curated, you know, this is the frame and this is what you're supposed to look at, like a movie. And then the big thing with Half-Life 1, which came out in like 1999, I think. The big thing with Half-Life 1 was that they didn't use cutscenes for anything. It all is kind of like what you're saying, environmental storytelling, where you see you don't have a way out, but you have this air duct that you can kind of see and you have a crowbar. And you like pick up on clues, like the narrative of the story is dependent on you to figure out, but they point you in that direction or they tell you certain things through the formal aspects of the video game. It's so funny too because um, you know whether or not Half-Life was an influence on Miyazaki when he made Dark Souls because obviously there's bigger influences there like um, Berserk the manga and mm -hmm. you know other things but um, you know Dark Souls world and Half-Life's world don't give a crap about you and yeah. they are going <laughs> to continue um, no matter what you do, and in the original Half-Life and all the subsequent Half-Lifes, if you miss something going on in the world, the game doesn't tell you and doesn't make you watch it. And, you know, even uh, one of my favorite game franchises, Gears of War, has like a giant Y button to say, look at the thing happening right now, and uh -huh. I hate it. <laughs> um, yeah, Half-Life was revolutionary and i know uh it's mentioned a lot but uh a lot of the time people talk about the physics or things like that but really the the world building itself was just unparalleled at that time and yeah. half-life was just out of control amazing yeah it's crazy to think that was 20 years ago that and we really haven't caught up, up to it no. <laughs> Uh, like I said, Dark Souls is a lot of different things to a lot of different people, and it seems that modern-day gaming journalists, uh, to them, Dark Souls is just a hard game that they cannot beat. Mm -hmm. And I do not like that analogy. Uh, initially with uh, Demon Souls, Miyazaki wanted a game that was difficult enough in its design that made you feel accomplished and satisfied with your own progress and your own growth after learning from your mistakes and growing as a player um you know i know it's really cringy but like your player didn't level up you leveled up and yeah, yeah, yeah. i hate myself for saying <laughs> that but that's what he wanted he wanted you to get better and have you have a sense of accomplishment for doing a thing rather than yes. get everything handed to you and to me Demon Souls and Dark Souls honestly were just modern day reinterpretations of The Legend of Zelda. Mm -hmm. To me when I was a kid, you know, exploring and learning everything and uh, you know, I was a little late to the party so Ocarina of Time was my first Zelda, but mm -hmm. that was an adventure like blew my mind.
-hmm. And I had to grow as a player and learn so much to be able to be good at that game at that age and eventually beat it. And to me, Dark Souls is not about difficulty. It's about like that adventure and learning and having an accomplishment by the end or even the little accomplishments. You're stuck on a boss forever. Or you yeah. can't even get to a boss in certain areas because they're um, so confusing or you know difficult. Again, I don't think that difficulty was the intended thing to focus on, but thanks in no small part due to modern journalism, that's exactly what it's focused. And now we know that Project Cars 2 is the Dark Souls of racing games. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah, to me it was about the adventure and the experience and having a sense of accomplishment. And by extension of that, uh, thanks to it not being strictly a single player game, was about community and camaraderie and being able to accomplish that with other people. There was a Phenomenal community built around that game, and uh, I wouldn't be able to be as good at those games as I am now and help other people without that initial, like, boost. You know, people kicking me in the butt to say, hey, this is how you do it, let me help you out. Mm -hmm. And without that community, I would have hated those games, and I probably would have dropped them, and I would have never sat for five hours a day, you know, helping other people beat Vicar Amelia and Bloodborne. Um, so, yeah, just the, the camaraderie and, and the help from Complete Strangers is why I love Dark Souls. And I will argue with everybody who says that it's strictly about difficulty because that is just one very minor aspect to the uh, overall goal of what I believe the game designers wanted you to get out of the game, not just to be hard and laugh at you every time you died. What do you think... I was thinking about this the other day. What do you think about arcade gaming uh the kind the style of games where you would actually have to pay a quarter to play not like they have now where you go in and you play all these retro arcade games and you just play a flat fee and you can play as much as you want i often think back to the difficulty threshold of those style of games where um every time you die you have to put it in a quarter right and the threshold is they want to make money, so they want you to die, but they don't want to make it so dooming that you well, you're feel not going like, to pay. I'm never going to, yeah. I'm not getting anything from this life. Like where life actually costs a quarter. Um, where in the case of like Dark Souls, like if you had to pay a quarter for every time you died or in Celeste or something, you'd be like, okay, that'd be us. $300 game like <laughs> at least yeah yeah <laughs> um do you think that arcade gaming kind of shaped the way that games were made for a long time after that and that the sort of expectation of how much resiliency you need to have as a player is kind of like a backlash from that does that make sense like, yeah, no it makes complete sense i, I could equate <laughs> that to like generations of kids acting differently than their parents or, you know, like our cyclical shifts in, you know, politics or whatever like that. Right. Like, yeah. I think younger kids look at older kids and be like, man, I don't want to be like that. You know, like they see my generation of kids that live on their phones and can't hold a conversation with other people. And the students that I teach now, like, sure, they're on, you know, Discord or whatever, but they don't spend their lives on their phones because they just see that and they don't want to do that. And, uh, you know, all these, you know, Nintendo hard games or arcade hard games and gaming kind of turned into this very easy 
uh, immediate reward type thing. And I don't want to crap all over Call of Duty, but, you know, Call of Duty is uh, a very easy game to play, except mm-hmm. for, like, on the hardest difficulties. But, like, you know, even online, like, you're leveling up every other kill, and you're, you know, it's a very easy game to get into. It's a very easy game to get good at. And uh, most modern games are extremely forgiving with their saves or their lives or whatever. Looking at Dark Souls, it's really not any harder than those old arcade games. And I still think that those old arcade games are harder than anything else. And original yeah. Nintendo games, too. Like, Oh, my God. The NES games? I've never beaten a Mega Man game. No! Never. Lord, no. I love the music, especially in 2, but I have never beaten a Mega Man game. So, so difficult. Yeah, I, couldn't... I barely beat Super Metroid. <laughs> barely. <laughs> but, like... When I was a kid, uh, there was an Italian restaurant that had a few arcade machines, and uh, all of my parents' quarters went into House of the Dead 2 mm-hmm. and Hydro Thunder. And I could still hear the music in Hydro Thunder in my head. Uh, the Hydro most, Thunder was like a... Uh, a boat racing. Boat game. racing, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and you had the, the throttle, which you could like jam forward to hop. It was amazing. And one of the best days of my life, my parents bought me that and an expansion pack for my N64 so I can play it. At nice. home. Um, but there was a point where, uh, you know, we, me and my buddy would just dump money into those machines. And they were not easy games. Like, the first three races in Hydro Thunder were very easy. Again, to hook you in, it's like a drug, right? Then the medium courses were medium. But the hard courses were brutally difficult. And it got to a point where we could put in one round of money and beat the entire game, but that took a lot of money. But at the same time, it was extremely rewarding to be that good at a game. And, you know, even with games that are that hard today, for instance, um, I have a game called Red Out, which is like an anti-gravity racer. And I haven't gone back after just like an hour or two of playing it because it's so difficult. But at the same time, there's no structure or real punishment for me. Like, Mm -hmm. if I don't win a race i just get to retry it i don't lose quarters on it and uh i definitely think that modern gaming has gone very very soft and frankly when it comes down to it dark souls is really not that difficult of a game but comparatively speaking to every other modern game it seems like it's an impossible task so then we get the dark souls of racing and the dark souls of platforming and uh, Dark Souls Remastered was the Dark Souls of Remasters. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I definitely see that trend. So, <clears throat> gaming, as a high school teacher, video games are obviously very big for our students. And I I think in the art realm, it's an easy money like uh, topic to talk about with a lot of the students to say, all right, let's talk about the elements of art. Um, let me show you this game, uh, Limbo, or you know, if we're talking about value, right? And the different things that you can do in a limited, like not a, just graphical black and white. fidelity, but the actual art design. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's very easy. Like kids, and they're familiar with video games, so you can say, you know, like you remember this style of artwork like the borderlands style versus any you know or just compare all the legend of zelda styles and say like how would you describe this breath of the wild versus ocarina of time how do you how do you use video games in the classroom i guess or do you 
Yeah, as far as that goes, um, man, I wish, uh, you know, I had a class like, uh, obviously, I'm extremely jealous of all your art classes. <laughs> Uh, one, you're a better artist than me, and two, you get to dabble with this kind of stuff you're, on a daily you're basis. You're a pretty good artist, too, though. I just, I'm whiteboard. Okay. I'm it's okay with that. <laughs> <laughs> it's amazing. Um, I wish I absolutely could use that more in class. Um, <laughs> really, when it comes down to it, if a student is working and they need to calm down, I put on the Minecraft Alpha soundtrack, because who doesn't love wet hands? But, uh, you know, I absolutely love it. I just, uh, you know, I'll probably make it the rest of my summer project to find a way to shoehorn that into a lesson are there any particular games where the art design not the graphical fidelity but the actual art design or the soundtrack really meant something to you or moved you in a way that not a lot of other things did i will use this as a way to transition to earthbound because the earthbound soundtrack was something that says everything about earthbound and Earthbound was a video game that I bought in 1995 and played every year completely through until, through, like when I was in graduate school, I played it, you know, in the summer. Um, so up until a couple of years ago. And the music in that is indicative of the, the complexity of what the game's talking about because it starts off with a very happy, very, the colors are very bright. When you're in this, the first town where you grew up, it's happy-go-lucky music that as the game progresses, you get these little drops of weirdos and the weirdos have their own music. So like when you, uh, you go into a certain area and you're confronted by this enemy that's actually a person but the enemy is called like cranky old lady uh, and she has this music and it is meant to put you on edge and you you go to these other towns that are like something's wrong you can tell by the music as soon as you walk in the there's a place called happy happy village which is overtaken by cultists and everything is blue and you know that when you first walk in because this really kind of like uh, dissonant music starts playing and somebody approaches you and says, did you steal from the banana uh, basket and you didn't pay? The thing about Earthbound and the music and the uh, tone and the writing and everything was that it has, uh, it's one of those games that appears really friendly and very like inviting. Like this is, you're just, you're a kid, you're cool. You're, you know, gonna save the world. And then as the game progresses, it says, no, you have to grow up. There's weird things that are going to happen. Um, everything is not as it seems, and you need to wake up and take on more responsibility as the game goes on. I don't know, that game, there's just certain things about that game, like, it's hard to explain, but there's certain things about the game as you progress where you're, you're Ness and you're, like, in the middle of a battle, and then all of a sudden you, you're, you say, attack the enemy, and it gets to be your turn, and it says... Ness doesn't feel like attacking the enemy. <laughs> Ness is thinking about his mom. And like, <laughs> it's, it hits you in ways that you're like, damn video game, stop. <laughs> uh, but it hits you in ways that are very real and very psychological that 
you don't think the game is capable of touching you in that kind of way. But there's certain games, like what other kind of games did you play that connected with on a deep level like those Dark Souls games? Uh, so yeah, I want to drop Near Automata again. Um, I'm going to sound like a complete weeb if anybody actually knows what this game is. Um, so there was a game prior to it, just titled Near, and it dealt a lot with gestalts and what actually is human and dealt a lot with... Uh, the. the I'm definitely not going to be uh, accurate in uh, this plot synopsis, but I think the first near dealt with, there was a disease wiping out all of humanity, so they built bodies for people's souls to get transferred into. But those bodies over centuries ended up gaining sentience and consciousness. So it dealt a lot with, like, what is it to be alive? What is it to be human? You know, um, and that sort of stuff. So near Automata... Um, takes place uh, millennia afterwards and um, essentially uh, the whole thing was just a futile attempt at literally anything you were doing um, spoiler alert for those of you who uh, want to play it and don't want the story ruined on you I'm going to talk about that right now um, so you find out that humans actually don't exist anymore uh, it's your character's job you play multiple characters throughout multiple playthroughs uh, to essentially uh, destroy all the robots and create a place for humans to live again because the last remaining humans are on the moon. But that's a complete lie, and it was perpetuated to give you, as an android, a reason to actually live. It gave you a purpose. So a lot of the game itself dealt with a lot of very deep and heavy issues about um, what's the meaning of life, what does it mean to be alive, uh, what is my purpose in life, so uh, it really connected with me on a deep level because um, I'm one of the few positive existentialists, I guess, if you want to call that its own thing. Um, or I guess uh, a secular humanist, if we're getting into the religious aspect. I know Carl Sagan uh, mm -hmm. was like this and uh, the philosopher um, Camus as well. But essentially, um, you know, my outlook on life is I really don't think that humans have a purpose it's up to us to make our own purpose which i think is also freeing because it throws destiny and fate and all of that stuff out the window um and you know existential thought in general is very depressing because people are seen as inconsequential tiny little specks on the universal radar um and the universe doesn't give a crap about us mm -hmm. but to me that's freeing because you know we get to make our own choices and we get to do what we want and yeah. i get to define my own personal successes and happiness and um you know making people laugh and educating my kids and you know making uh, my fiance and my dogs happy and my friends happy and having a good relationship with all of them and my parents and my coworkers. that makes me feel happy and successful so that's what i go after in life and, uh, you know, Nier touches a lot on all of that. Do you think that's why Carl Sagan always seems like he's the most joyous person of all time? <laughs> like, if you look at that video of him, he's just like, blah, blah, blah. He's just having a great time. Uh, yeah, I would chalk it up to his own personal philosophy. Or a lot of weed, either or, way. Or, you know, yeah. either way, it was a funky um, time. No, but yeah, I think that his beliefs, too, you know... Um, if you spend your whole life studying, you know, outer space and physics and you need to wrap your mind around the fact that, like, this void, which contains little to no life, is possibly infinitely big. 
Um, and for Carl Sagan to not be a miserable piece of crap and be depressed all the time, then I think that he probably shared that same kind of outlook. I think it, I think the science to him was his religion. Yeah. Like he, the well, right today he, it's defined as a religion. That's yeah. secular humanism. I don't know if he, you know, defined it when he was alive. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I haven't looked that much into it, but I do know that that is, um, you know, it always refers to him when talking about that kind of religious outlook. It seems like any time that you just take a bigger picture of something and like you go to a different country and you see yourself as, oh, I'm this, you go outside. Um, I think back to like, I read something the other day that said that people didn't really start to think about environmental issues until in a serious way until we had um, gone into space and taken a photograph of the planet. Like people, and once you can physically see a photograph of the planet, Earth, then you're like, oh, yeah, this then is you what have some it sort is of this. tangible yeah. conceptualization of uh -huh. yeah. yeah. And then you keep backing out, and you're like, oh, we're part of this. We, uh, you know, exist in the solar system, which is part of this galaxy, which is part of this. It seemed like the for Carl Sagan, the more he zoomed out, the more exalted he became. He just was he's like, isn't this amazing? I don't mean anything to anything. Like, I'm so consequenceless. Um, so we have a student in common. I will not mention his name, but he is a, an aspiring game creator. Yeah. And he is so much fun to work with as a student. Um, and we have both created assignments for him to kind of like get to the material that we're talking about, but also in a game way, like make a game that deals with this or um, create an art project as if you were making this game so like I had for his final project in art, I had him design a poster that was for a game that he theoretically made. Um, so what it would look like, how you present the information and it's a, um, basically a design project, but it had to do with first you have to create a game and he's a kind of student who will take it serious enough to really go into detail. Oh, he makes his own AI. Yeah. <laughs> He's out of his brain. He's so smart. Yeah. yeah. What kind, so for those kids that are not only video game enthusiasts, but also could be creators one day, how do you coach them? And how, what kind of things do you want to give them as like assignments or readings or your homework is to play this game and consider this. So essentially I just use games or game design as a vessel to kind of mask uh, real life lessons. So for instance, um, he was really nervous about flipped classrooms. Uh, you know, so for those that don't know, uh, we make the students teach us. So it kind of makes them understand the material more and they have to be able to uh, relate it in a way that's understandable rather than just knowing it in their own head. So we spent an afternoon, uh, he told me he was not ready to give an oral presentation on um, 
his work for life skills. So uh, I think we spent an afternoon just watching videos on YouTube and uh, I'm really big into rally racing. I love the dirt series. So um, we watched a comparison of the graphical updates between dirt rally and dirt rally 2.0. Uh, we watched a couple clips from the awful movie, The Incredible Bulk. And uh, essentially, I just played dumb and I said, hey, man, I don't understand anything about this. Like, what's going on with the bloom effects and the lighting and dirt? Or, you know, why? I understand that The Incredible Bulk looks like garbage, but why in particular does this thing look as bad as it does? And framing it in a way for him to just do what he does best, but relay that information uh, very confidently and put him in a space where he wasn't uncomfortable uh, kind of helped him flourish and then at the end of class I'm like okay here's your grade and he looked at me like I had three heads and said grade for what I'm like this is your role of presentation you were able to teach me this entire class and he's like oh man it's that easy isn't it I'm like, yeah you just yes. need to be comfortable with the material and right now we just need to get a little better at you know, independent living or financial planning or professionalism or mm -hmm. negotiation. And, you know, once I was able to frame it in a way for him to say, okay, this might not be my passion, but if I tackle it the same way that I tackle knowing how lighting works in games or knowing how coding works, um, really helped him break through that initial wall of, um, you know, not being confident and not wanting to give an oral presentation or to flip the classroom. So, um, we don't necessarily use video games as the lesson itself, but just a vessel by which the lesson can get done, which I think he appreciates, or at least I hope he does. A lot of a lot of students will put too much emphasis on, like if they're a young game designer, they put a lot of emphasis on like learning the technical traits of, okay, I need to learn this program to be a game designer. And really... I, I think it's too young to really dig that deep into that kind of stuff. And I had a professor in grad school who had an interesting philosophy on that. Um, I took web design with him and he opened the class by saying, we're not going to learn any code. You're not going to learn HTML, CSS, Java, anything. By the time five years from now, it's all going to be new. There's going to be whole new, you know, you will have to keep up with the coding um, to be able to write websites from scratch. And you are all artists. Do you want to be a coder or do you want to be an artist who has a website? Let's not spend our time right now talking about the technical stuff. Let's talk about what makes a good website and what looks good and what works like in a design way. So in the same way that it's like a video game, I almost, I love the idea of like the board game. If you can build a successful board game or a card game, then you you know the mechanics of what a good video game is. Right, at some point you need to design some sort of rules to be put in place, whether it's, you know, physics, right? How high you can jump or what you yeah. can do. Like, are you gonna not have jumping mechanics? So you don't need to build invisible walls. You could just have knee-high barriers mm -hmm. that are aggravating to everybody, right? Or do you want to completely blow that out of the water and make something stupid like, you know, uh, Saints Row, where the fourth one, you're just, you're literally a superhero. And yeah. you can fly and jump and do all kinds of wacky stuff. So, um, yeah, I absolutely think that hitting it from the proper creative 
aspects is so important because I think that's why this student in particular was so afraid of things like interviewing because he, he just saw like the professionalism and dressing up and answering everything mm -hmm. the right way. And I told him, no, that is not it. People don't want to interview a robot. They yeah. want to hire somebody that they're probably going to enjoy working with that's competent at the job and will get better as time goes on. They don't want you to peak coming into it. So what we're going to work on is your confidence in answering questions that you know about yourself and your skills. Because you're not going to have the perfect answer, but you're going to have to talk about you as a person or your skill set applied to different tasks or problems or whatever you're going to see at that job. So for me, it wasn't to make him a professional interviewer. It was for me to build a space for him to be more confident in himself and more confident in his answers. Yeah. I think just being like what you're talking about is kind of just being in process and kids are so scared of the process that yeah. once they're pushed into it and they have to start making decisions, that's when it's, oh, it's not that scary. This is, you know, anything you can do just about anything. I think that way about Mario Maker all the time where you like <laughs> make a level that you think you know how it's going to play. Then you give it to somebody else and you're like, play this level. And they beat it in a way that you never thought of. Could ne yeah, yeah. Never thought of. You were like, oh, you can just jump over everything. <laughs> Dang it. Or, or you're so ingrained in jumping the platforming parts of it that it's impossible for somebody else to come in and complete it the way that you thought it was. Or you don't understand how all the parts start mixing together once that world is created. So you say, like, here's two Koopas. And my mushroom was up there and you start playing the game and the two Koopas just immediately fall off <laughs> and they just like walk off a cliff and like, okay, so all my difficulty is gone now. Look you know? at the original uh, Super Mario world, right? Um, you could circumvent 70% of that game with the, uh, the cape, mm -hmm. you just fly over everything. So totally. if you don't have that in mind and you want it to be set a particular way, um, that's frankly how I teach my economics class. You know, uh, and government by extension, uh, we talk a lot about incentives just to help students understand why people make the decisions that they make. And if you have a rules system in place, somebody will find a way to cheat and break your system apart. And, you know, that's exactly what incentives are all about. You know, how are you incentivizing people to not break the law or do a good job at work or whatever? And, um, you know, just like real people in the real world, a monetary or a punitive incentive is going to be completely different for two different people, let alone an entire country. And then you're trying to design a well-crafted world for an entire legion of people out there that play Super Mario Maker that have different play styles. Some take it easy, yeah. some want to glitch the crap out of it, some will fly over everything. So it's a daunting task. Again, yeah. just diving in and, you know, not having a, a structure to, to deal with or not knowing where to start is yeah. is crazy scary to deal with. Yeah. Especially for students. Oh my God. Oh, do you mind if I ask you a question? Sure. Yeah. All right. Uh, yeah. So, Brock, um, one of the places that you're uploading this is your own personal website, right? Yeah. Um, so on that website, you have a bunch of different galleries of uh -huh. artwork that you've created before. I would love to know what 
was the driving factor or inspiration for the particular pieces that you did on video games because uh frankly i'm probably going to steal that cacodemon one sometime <laughs> in the future especially if uh we buy a house next year that cacodemon is going up framed in the living room first of all thanks for thanks for checking out the website dude it's awesome um, i there's so there's several different video game series and i had one that was all earthbound is you know connected to the sanctuary spots there was one on Grand Theft Auto V where I was just, it was right after that came out and I was just playing in the world and that game is so designed so well. I think like a lot of people are tricked into thinking it's realistic and it's in some ways it is. In other ways, it's obviously more painterly and designed and beautiful than the actual Los Angeles. like. Yeah, Rockstar is known for their satire, whether or not you think it's good or bad. They absolutely put a lot of work into uh, reflecting the real world and almost acting as stand-up comedians because they observe the real world and then they reflect that in their worlds in Grand Theft Auto yes. because it's it's satirical. It's very well, cutting and very funny. That's what I guess that's what satire is. It's kind of like taking a grain of truth and enlarging it to a degree that it's funny or beautiful or whatever the emotion is like the i i I like go back to the sunsets and in grand theft auto 5 they're like more beautiful than the actual sunsets but everybody's like oh it's so realistic it's like that's not the right word it's romanticized or it's like yeah, same you thing in I mean? Red Dead Redemption too. That yeah. environment is gorgeous, but it, you'd be hard pressed to find that exact same level of beauty in most of the world. I mean, you could go and hunt that down for sure. You know, especially in the Grand Canyon, where you know you don't need to worry about smog or anything like that. Yeah, it's definitely pushed to the point of being beautiful for the sake of art and less realistic for the sake of being realistic. I think that's what Rockstar does really well. So I was driving around Los Santos and like taking screen shots of different places and then I would make paintings that were just like taking some of the sections and making a minimal kind of a landscape painting based on screenshots of kind of like making an abstract painting based on a real screenshot but what you're talking about is um, from a series I had called uh, game recognizes game and it was about Mario Maker and it was kind of about like platforming and thinking of thinking of making paintings that were uh, kind of in the same spirit as Mario Maker so when I first started playing Mario Maker I was used to being critiqued by my peers and colleagues and professors and people within this institution of the art world and the university and when you make levels in Mario Maker you're critiqued by eight-year-olds and they're telling you don't put a pipe there without a uh you know without bricks behind it it's just floating you know look at this garbage level kill yourself yeah. <laughs> you ever get that from a professor <laughs> so it's like they but the interesting thing was like those eight-year-olds have valid points and oh, they for sure yeah, and for everybody sure. has who plays my level experiences it in a way much like i'm asking people to experience paintings like I really love the community of that, and I love getting people's feedback. I, I don't know, and I love experiencing other people's creativity and 
the things that they would do would just be nothing that I would ever think of. Um, and they would manipulate the environment in these really interesting ways. But so game recognizes game was kind of taking the, taking video games and taking painting and trying to mush it up together. And these different video games that I played growing up, like, um, doom or, um, platformers, um, or metal gear solid or something like that and taking bones of video games to use them for a big painting. And in the same way that a player might jump from platform to platform, a viewer's eyes kind of jump, like I'm trying to direct them from one area to the next. Like there's a couple of paintings in that series where there's just platforms and there's a ladder and there's a this and then that, and then there's a boss. So I'm kind of like, encouraging a painting to act more like a video game where the viewer has to like go through the different parts to then meet the boss and like visually explore. I always like there's these um, paintings that are made by these Taoist like Chinese ancient Chinese paintings that are kind of in that same vein. So a lot of Taoists their their whole philosophy and uh, religion is kind of tied in with like this self-exploration but also this exploration in nature. Um, Taoist paintings are like these giant landscapes and you can like the more you look the more little details you see like you're like oh this is a tiny waterfall over here. There's a band of people that are traveling along this path and the idea is that the viewer is kind of supposed to travel the same path with your eye that these Taoists are taking throughout nature like one more example on that is the um, breath of the wild there's these things called korok seeds which are these little inconsistencies in nature and you might see you might go into a forest and see a pile of rocks and it kind of looks a little strange and the more you look around you might see like one little rock over here to the side and you say huh what if I just out of place? Yeah. Yeah. What if you take, what if I pick up this rock and put it with the rest of the rocks over here? And as soon as you do that, this little forest person pops up and says, ha ha, you found me. And you're like, wow, that was a really, you know, I didn't, nobody jumped out and said, Hey, move this rock over there. Yeah. You just visually kind of like you wanted to correct something. I love that about video games. And I, you leave breath of the wild with this eye for things like that in real life where you're like, Wait, if I turn this thing upside down, am I going to get a Korok seed right now? So I'm going to make this public since this is going to be on the podcast to maybe strong arm you into doing a commission for me. But if you want to make a sequel to uh, your video game stuff, I uh, am a little disappointed, not too disappointed with the uh-huh. fact that you picked the box from Metal Gear Solid yeah. for your last piece. <laughs> if I could request something with the ladder from Metal Gear Solid 3... Uh, I would pay you whatever you wanted for that. Maybe with Whoa. Solid Snake at the bottom and Venom at the top, like this, you know, uh, evolution of the series from where it started on, well, not, you know, it started on uh, Super Nintendo, but where it started truly with the storytelling in Wanda, the last thing that we got before uh, Konami killed it off. So uh, if you're into commissions, well, you this know, is my public request for that. Well, somebody has a wedding coming up. And a tradition Uh-oh. is to give gifts for a wedding. So uh, that's a that's a perfect idea for that. Well, I'll keep that in mind. Yeah. Um, thanks for coming on the podcast, Chris. You've been great. 
Brock, I thanks for having me on the podcast. Ideas. Man, uh, I've how... been looking forward to this for a long time. Yeah, me too. Where can people reach you if they have any other questions related to what you've been talking about? Uh, well, they can always stop into Fusion Academy here at the Woodlands, but uh, if you uh, need to shoot me an email uh, for anything in particular, you can find me at wallachlegal at gmail.com. That's my last name, W-A-L-L-I-C-K-L-E-G-A-L, and that is at uh, gmail.com. Throw me a line if uh, you want to talk shop about law, education, uh, video games, dogs, doesn't matter to me. Awesome. Uh, you can follow Summer League at Summer League HTX on Instagram. And we'll be back next week with another teacher. Thanks again, Chris. Thanks, Brock. See ya.